Welcome to the pilot episode of Voices Unheard, where we bring you stories from the Arab and Muslim world. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and in this episode, we interview a former political detainee. He gives us a rare look inside one of Syria's notorious prisons, which have become so overcrowded that oftentimes it's standing room only. Earlier this year, some footage surfaced of what looked like Syrian rebels opening the gates for some 150 people detained by the Syrian regime. Presumably, they were political prisoners. The detainees are jubilant. They come pouring out of their cramped cells where they had nowhere to sit down, let alone sleep. Over the past four years, thousands of ordinary Syrians have been detained without charge or trial. Conditions can be so bad that people die from asphyxiation alone. Many others die under torture, or they simply disappear. The Syrian regime is the main culprit, but activists also blame major rebel groups for carrying out similar tactics against anyone who shows dissent. So what's it like to endure such imprisonment? 28-year-old Yazan Awad tells us. He survived it for several months after he was arrested with his friends in 2012. They had been organizing peaceful protests around the capital, Damascus. We've translated and edited this version of his story and hired an actor to narrate it. We caution that there's strong language that may be inappropriate for some audience. My first night in detention, I slept near the wall. The room looked like a lecture hall, with a raised stage but no chairs. Tile floors, no windows, neon lights. They were noisy, and sometimes they'd go dark during a power outage, but just for a moment until the generator kicked in. We were about 170 guys in there, including teenagers, and a few children the youngest about 10 years old. We were all political prisoners, except for about a dozen men who had been there all along for violent crimes. It was so crowded, we couldn't always sleep. And when we could, it was on our side, like knives stacked in a drawer, one next to the other. The guys called it sleeping on your sword. We managed to stay warm, not just because of body heat, but because we usually had plenty of military-issued blankets that we shared. Our jailers were professional like that. They'd even give us extra food when we asked for it. They were Syrian Air Force intelligence personnel, highly trained in maintaining a detention center, and especially trained in torture and interrogation techniques. The guys called it marhaba beating, Arabic for the welcoming. It's a detainee's first interrogation, and everyone goes through it. Mine took six hours. And from then on, my interrogators beat me periodically. I would lie down on my belly, hands cuffed behind me, my eyes blindfolded. Sometimes they would tell me to straighten up, and I'd have to sit up on my knees. Then they'd punch or kick me. Sometimes they put out cigarettes on my skin. I tried to build a relationship with my interrogator. I figured I'd play the dainty city boy. A sissy boy. <laughs> More than a sissy boy, actually. 
I would exaggerate my screaming and my crying, and I think it helped. He'd ease up on me a bit. You see, I was among a few guys from the city, from the capital, Damascus, where my friends and I used to organize protests. The rest of the detainees were from rural areas. It was a little kept secret that city boys got off easy because the rebellion started mainly in rural areas, so detainees from there were treated very badly. During my torture sessions, I knew that my interrogator had limited time to spend with me and that he had other things to do. One time he yelled, because of you, I haven't seen my wife for three months. Another time, the interrogator sent back a detainee to our cell unharmed. It turned out the torture session had been canceled because the chief interrogator received a call that his wife had just gone into labor. Actually, there was that one time when I didn't want the session to end. Do you know why? Because there was a soccer game on TV in the next room, and I could hear it. It was at Clasico, a match between Barcelona and Madrid. And I was actually praying that my interrogators would keep on beating me for a bit longer, so that at least I'd know who was winning. <laughs> Time passed so slowly in there. It felt endless. But we came up with ways to entertain ourselves. There was this one guy who had an excellent singing voice, so we would sing along with him. One time he started singing Oh Mother by Marcel Khalife. Everyone was moved to tears. All grown men, but you could hear their sniffles. We came up with other ways to keep busy, like playing trivia games, similar to the ones on TV. Except ours was a lot harder. We came up with very obscure questions in order to outsmart the other team. The most difficult question I asked was when my opponent picked the sports category. I asked him, when do they switch out the balls in a tennis tournament? He thought about it for a while, then requested the multiple choice option. So I gave him four choices. But he guessed wrong, and we won that round. The next round I asked him, why do they change balls in tennis initially after nine shots, then 11 shots after that? I don't know how I know this stuff. I just do. And we won again. In that cell, our jailers sometimes ignored the noise we made, even as we got louder and louder and more excited. There were other cells. I went through at least seven, each with its own good and bad. In some cells, we couldn't make a single sound, or all of us would get beaten. In some cells, we could sleep reasonably okay, or sit on the floor. In others, we were standing room only, like pickles in a jar. In some cells, we couldn't even tell night from day. <sighs> Let's see. How else did we pass the time? You know, there's an Arabic saying that translates as, I will make you forget your mother's milk. It's an accurate description of what life in there was like. Your mind becomes so small, you focus on the little things that fill up your day. Like how to protect your shoes from theft, because that's what we used for pillows. Or which days your interrogator came on duty. 
Mine was on duty on Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. I never got called out on other days. We thought about food. You know, I could never pass up the occasional treat we got, which was halva. We all obsessed about it, and I never even used to like it before. That sweet, rich sesame taste, and the way it crumbles in your mouth. It was the one thing I could have started a fight over. <laughs> Why am I telling you these things? I guess I want to explain how it was that I managed to forget everything while I was in there. My brain was so preoccupied with the little day-to-day -day stuff that I literally forgot I had a brother. Yes, I forgot about my own brother. Can you imagine that? I forgot many of my friends and family. I remembered only my mother. Now that I'm out, I remember a few guys from the inside very well. They came through for me, especially after my worst interrogation session. It was day 36. My interrogators called me out of the cell for what turned out to be the most brutal day of beatings. They hung me by my wrists from the ceiling for hours until my shoulders got dislocated. They hit me with sticks and cables. They kicked. They punched. They shouted orders, calling me names. On the floor, you son of a dog. On your stomach, you animal. I remember the taste of my own blood. They put my feet through a tire and shouted, Feet up, you donkey! There were five of them beating me. Usually it's just one guy, but on that day there were five, each with a different weapon. One was hitting me with a stick, another with a plastic pipe, a metal wire, a wooden rod. Many times, over and over. We'll show you, you son of a whore. There was electric shock. They disrobed me, then stuck the barrel of a Klashnikov inside me. After they returned me to the cell, I was in so much pain, I could only sit in some awkward position. I couldn't chew food. My jaw was dislocated. My face was so swollen. A lot of the guys took such good care of me. This one guy, he fed me. He actually chewed the food and handed it over to me to swallow. And my feet, they were so painful. I couldn't walk or put any pressure on them. A guy from Aleppo started to rub my feet to ease my pain. I felt so ashamed. I told him, no, no, please, you don't need to do that. He said, it's all right. This is normal here. He helped me out of my clothes and washed them for me. All the blood, the stains. Another guy, a Kurdish doctor, gave me his outer clothes to wear. Someone even gave me his own underwear. It took me 12 days to be able to walk and eat again. I was released four months later.
Yazan has since fled Syria to Egypt. He recently became engaged to a young Syrian woman. They both want to emigrate to Europe and finish their college education, which was interrupted by the uprising in Syria four years ago. You've been listening to Standing Room Only, the pilot episode of Voices Unheard. Narration was done by working actor Niyusha Navab in Washington, D.C. Sound design and mixing by Tariq Fuda in New York City. Music by Ramallah Underground and Marcel Khalife. Special thanks to Matt Driscoll of Wildcat Productions in Singapore. For more stories from around the Arab and Muslim world, subscribe to our podcast and send us your feedback. We're also looking for sponsorship and support, so we'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm.